This episode of The Murder of My Family is brought to you by Madison Reed. Madison Reed has hair color that is gorgeous, salon quality, multi-dimensional, ammonia-free, and delivered to your door, all for under $25. Visit madison-reed.com for 10% off, plus free shipping on your first hair color kit with promo code FAMILY. That's promo code FAMILY. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderinmyfamily. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Please allow me a moment to share some important information before we get started. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderandmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderandmyfam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show via Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the Murder My Family. In each episode, I give shout-outs to any new supporters, and thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate, and keep the podcast going and improving. One last item, I'd like to invite you to check out and subscribe to my YouTube channel, in which I talk about all kinds of true crime topics and projects that I'm working on. Just go to YouTube and search for True Crime Guy, and you'll find my channel. I plan to create new and fresh videos for the channel, as well as have interactive chats from time to time, so I hope you'll consider checking it out. Thank you, and now on with the show. Lubbock, Texas is located in the northwestern part of the state home to Texas Tech and birthplace of 50s rock icon Buddy Holly. The city was devastated in 1970 when it took a direct hit from an F5 tornado. Over two dozen people were killed and there were damages in excess of $100 million. But the nearly 200,000 residents of Lubbock County were tough and by the mid-1970s had rebuilt and were looking forward to the future. This was an exciting time for a lot of people in Lubbock. One of those people was Deborah Sue Agnew, who had moved with her family to Lubbock from Childress in 1973. Deborah, or Debbie as she was known to family and friends, had just graduated from Coronado High School in May of 1975, and the 18-year-old had fallen head over heels for Doug Williamson. The young couple wasted no time starting their lives together and were married on June 14, 1975. For almost three months, the newlyweds got used to life as a married couple. Everything seemed perfect, and the future appeared to be bright for the young couple. But in late August, the couple would be ripped apart by an unspeakable act. On the evening of August 24th, 
Debbie went to a local restaurant to have dinner with her parents, Bob and Joyce Lemons. After dinner, at around 8.30 p.m., the Lemons dropped Debbie off at her house. Not long after arriving home, at around 9 p.m., Debbie called Doug at his job at a local pizza restaurant. Debbie told Doug that she would come to his job and work on crossword puzzles to pass the time away until he got off. Doug was happy to hear from her and thought it was a good idea. But Debbie never showed up at Doug's work. When Doug finally got off, he headed home, and when he arrived in the early morning hours of August 25th at about 1.10 a.m., he was greeted by a horrible sight. Lying in the carport was his young bride. Doug jumped from the car and raced to Debbie's side. She was covered in blood. He immediately noticed that Debbie's blouse was open and that her pants were pulled down. Doug ran into his house and called police. At 1.14 a.m., police received his frantic call telling them, My wife, she's been raped. Unfortunately, this would turn out to be more than a rape case. Within four minutes of Doug's call to police, the first officer arrived on the scene. He quickly checked Debbie's condition, but he couldn't help her. She was already dead. More officers soon arrived. Some tried to move Doug away from the spot where his wife's body lay. They wanted to keep the young husband calm and find out what details he could give them. More police officers showed up at the scene, and in all the commotion, some of them inadvertently may have disturbed clues and evidence as they moved around the crime scene. Once detectives arrived, they began to assess the crime scene. Debbie's body was face up and had been positioned or posed in a sexually provocative way and was partially undressed. It was clear that she had been stabbed several times. On the ground near her body, police found Debbie's car keys as well as a crossword puzzle book and a pen. Based on her phone call with Doug a few hours earlier, it seemed that Debbie was heading out to meet him at the pizza shop when she was attacked. Police looked around at the yard and inside the home for more evidence or clues. Investigators were able to determine that the initial attack had taken place about 27 feet from where Debbie's body was found. They theorized that Debbie was attacked between 9.30 and 10 p.m. as she walked to her car to go see Doug. Some things stood out to investigators. A door to the carport was open but locked. A kitchen window was broken, possibly broken outward. A search of the residence revealed that the only things that seemed to be missing were Debbie's purse, which contained about $120 in cash, and a photo album, which seems like an odd thing for a burglar to take. There were, however, a couple pieces of evidence that might be linked to the killer. A strand of hair clutched in Debbie's hand, as well as unidentified fingerprints. There were no witnesses, and no murder weapon was found at the scene. Police theorized that based on the missing purse and broken window, that Debbie had likely interrupted a burglar and had been attacked during the confrontation. But this theory had glaring problems. The glass fragments from the broken window were found on top of the pool of blood, not underneath it, which indicated that the window was actually broken after the attack on Debbie. This glaring mistake in the investigator's theory was just one troubling issue with the investigation. Given that so many police officers had moved back and forth through the crime scene, there was no telling what they had disturbed or destroyed. One source close to the investigation would later say of it, In all my years' experience with law enforcement, it was the worst, sloppiest, on-the-scene investigation I have ever seen. Debbie's body was removed and taken to the medical examiners. During the autopsy, it was determined that Debbie had been stabbed at least 15 times in the head, back, neck, and torso. Further examination concluded that she was not raped. Debbie's young husband and her family were shocked and devastated by the murder. 
One of the people who took it especially hard was Debbie's eight-year-old sister, Liz, who had spent much of her summer with Debbie. She didn't fully understand what was going on, just that her older sister was gone and wasn't coming back. At Debbie's funeral, two days after her body was found, Liz spent time close to Debbie's casket, wondering what had happened to her older sister. The painful memories of the funeral wound up staying with Liz for the next four decades. After Debbie was laid to rest, police continued their investigation, checking leads and questioning suspects, but no arrests were made. Police checked out rumors of a satanic cult being connected to the murder, as well as burglary attempts before the murder at the home of Debbie's parents. But none of the avenues that police went down seemed to be connected to Debbie's murder. After only a year, police seemed to sound as if they were defeated. In August of 1976, a local newspaper reported that, barring a confession by the killer, there was little hope in the department that the case would be solved. The Lubbock community was still shocked and saddened over the brutal and senseless murder of the young bride a year earlier, and they wondered if a killer was walking amongst them. Debbie's family felt that the investigation into her murder wasn't going anywhere, and that would prove to be a frustrating situation for them for years to come, as they got no real answers in Debbie's case. Almost a decade later, as Debbie's murder seemed cold and hopelessly stalled, an infamous serial killer who was no stranger to Texas law enforcement would take center stage in Debbie's case and claim that he was responsible for killing her. In 1983, Henry Lee Lucas began a string of confessions to Texas Rangers, taking credit for dozens of murders, one of them being Debbie's murder. But in most of the confessions, Lucas could provide very little in way of details that matched the facts of the crimes. And this was true of his confession to Debbie's murder. The state's attorney general began the probe into the confessions of Henry Lee Lucas and doubted the validity of most of his accounts. The Lemons would spend a great deal of time, money, and resources trying to prove that Lucas didn't kill their daughter. In the end, Lucas was ruled out as being the killer, but not before the Lemons had essentially bankrupted themselves in the process. The family moved away from Lubbock, trying to make a fresh start and distance themselves from the painful reminders of Debbie's murder. Decades passed, and Debbie's murder was forgotten by many. But one person who never forgot the case was Debbie's sister Liz, who's now grown and wants answers and justice for her sister. She has stepped up efforts to reignite the search for her sister's killer, and she joins me to discuss Debbie's case right after this word from our sponsor. The future of at-home hair color is here with Madison Reed, gorgeous salon-quality hair color delivered to your door on your schedule, all for under $25. Madison Reed is reinventing hair color with the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color and an ammonia-free formula made with ingredients you can feel good about. And Madison Reed is Leaping Bunny certified, which is one more great reason to feel good about trying Madison Reed. One box contains everything you need to color with confidence, including barrier cream, a protective cap, two pairs of gloves, and a cleansing wipe. Not to mention it has a cream-based formula, which means no drips, no mess. Just gorgeous color with 100% gray coverage. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And Madison Reed would like to honor listeners of The Murder of My Family with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the promo code FAMILY at checkout. That's promo code FAMILY. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Visit madison-reed.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. And now back to the show. Hi, Liz. Thanks for joining me to discuss your sister, Debbie Sue's case. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Your situation is a bit different than most guests I talk to on this show because you were much younger than Debbie Sue and you really were robbed of an entire life with your older sister. How old were you when she was murdered in 1975? I was eight years old when she was murdered. That's the time when kids start having memories that stick. Do you have a lot of memories of her, uh, vivid memories? Um, yes, I have a lot of memories. I have a lot of burned memories um, from that summer and when she was murdered and after. Yeah. And I read online that you had started looking into your sister's case initially because you just wanted to learn more about who she was, the things you didn't know when you were younger, and just find out more about her because mm-hmm. of the time that you missed out with her. Tell us a little bit about how that started. Yeah, I, um, several months had been going by, or I, I mean, longer than that, but it really just had been heavy on my heart for, for mul- multiple months. And it just, it was hurtful because, um, I didn't know what her favorite food was. Um, I couldn't remember. And, what did she laugh at? What did she do with her friends? She had just graduated in May of 75, so she was only 18. You know, what are some goofy things that she did? You know, those kind of things. And it just, it was, it was just hurting. It was really hurting. And I really wanted to know more about her as a, as a kid. So I reached out. And, and you wanted to find even just those basic things that you, you would have mm-hmm. known if you had the time with her. Correct. Yeah. Because a lot of my memories got altered because and went in different paths because of the tragedy. When you did reach out and you started looking into it based on what you could remember and based on what you learned from family and friends, tell us a little bit about who your sister was, what kind of person she was. Um, she was, she was the real deal. <laughs> she was, she was very caring. Um, she was kind. She'd help anybody. She didn't know a stranger as far as if somebody needed help, she was there for them. She pretty much was a mother figure to me. Um, I spent most of the summer with her, and we did things together. You knew where you stood with her. She was very kind, but she was very honest. She was an active Christian. She, I never heard anything in a bad way or she was, in today's terms, she would, she would be called a goody two shoes. 
So not any kind of trouble or no. things that would lead her to be in harm's way or anything like that? No, no. She she never did anything wrong. That's what was so surprising. And she just, she never inflicted in anything wrong. She didn't insert herself in anything that was wrong. She she really stood by her, her morals and her values of, of right and wrong. And at some point, your initial interest of just wanting to know more about her and try and recover mm-hmm. some of your memories and stuff started to turn into wanting to learn more about her case and try and figure out who murdered her. How did that transition start for you? Well, when I started reaching out and um, finding her friends and um, contacting them, and we wouldn't be talking very long and and. They, every one of them would ask and ask questions and would share things um, with me. And it just kind of, it just kind of grew from there. And then I kind of just decided I was what I needed to do. And I needed to pursue, it, it was time to pursue the truth. So you made it your mission sort of to try and figure out what happened to her. Yes, I did. Um, I refer to it as my journey. I was going to say, tell us a little bit about the journey itself that you're on and and where it's taking you so far. My journey has been a very challenging one. It's been very hard. 43 years, and it's just very challenging to get Lovett PD to, to, I guess, be um, more involved and, and pursue it. Because of the age. It's just been a struggle. It's just been a really struggle. So because and, the, it's cold or older that yeah. that they are not actively pursuing it possibly as much as you'd like them to? Correct. There's a lot of pushback. And I've been dealing with them for 20 months now. And they still have not done anything for 20 months. I understood that it was challenging for a 43-year-old case, you know, cold case murder. I understood that. I had reached out to different people for help and assistance um, in trying to solve her case. And the cold case, excuse me, the cold case foundation um, responded. And they, they ended up agreeing to help with her case. And they've been, they've been amazing actually they actually they they contacted Lubbock PD to con you know to work with them wanted to work with them it took many months and then finally they ended up having a meeting with them however um there's they won't collaborate with them so they're turning down help to solve a case um the cold case foundation is they're retired FBI agents, very high credentials. I think they would be very useful with their knowledge and skills, um, but they won't um, utilize it. So it's almost like they're resistant to to help. They're very resistant to help. And that's left you having to do more and try and search for more and, and collect things to try and help your own investigation what kind of things have you had to do and and 
have been successful with as far as finding out stuff about her case? I have spent thousands and thousands of hours and I have, I have found and traced so many different people trying to seek answers and help and information. Um, and I've, I've, I've done well, I think for starting out, not knowing anything of, of what direction to go. And they, everyone that I've contacted that has, that has had information, um, has been very helpful and have, has done what they can to assist. But then you still go back to the bottom line where it really, it really has to come from Lubbock PD. And has that always been the case or originally when it first happened, were they more helpful early on? Did they stay in touch with your family and keep your, your parents informed of what was going on? In the very beginning, I really want to say yes, but the truth is no. Um, they never were 100% keeping communication with my parents. I would actually, let me, let me rephrase that. I would say probably the first two months they were. Um, they were very helpful or they tried to be helpful. And then after that, there was just a lot of pushback. They just, they didn't have the answers for my parents and I think they just didn't know how to handle it at that time. So I think that was really a lot of it. They just didn't know how to handle my parents continuously. You know, I don't think there was a day that went by that they didn't call or show up and ask, you know, do you have any more information? Do you have any leads? And and they didn't have anything for them. Then, and everything just kind of got, you know, after a couple of years, it just went quiet. And we actually ended up moving in the middle of the night from Lubbock out of fear because starting the day of our funeral, me and my other sister were getting um, death threats. Our house had been broken in a couple of times and various things had happened. And my, my dad felt like he had no choice but to get us out of there for... For our safety. And did you think those things were related to the case or do you think it was somebody harassing you? From what I know now, I would say it's two separate situations. I think it was somebody harassing us and trying to push us out of Lubbock. Bottom line is the police told my parents that they could not protect us. And with that being said, my we left and I mean we left with the clothes on our back. So your family had to deal with this tragedy of your sister being mur- murdered. And then on top of it, you're scrambling to, to get out of there because of the aftermath, the stuff that's happening afterwards. Yes. Yes, it was. And then we lived in secrecy for about two years. Our family members didn't know where we were. We were very, we were loners. My, my parents didn't want anyone to know where we were um, out of protection for me and my sister. So they were very guarded and didn't necessarily trust everybody. Very guarded. Very guarded, and now they, my, my parents didn't have trust with nobody. Um, in reference to communicating with family, they had set up kind of a, a system where 
if like mailing letters and such, it would be mailed to different states and put in different envelopes to it for it to get to the person or you know it was intended to, so it couldn't be traced back to where it came from. Um, that's the kind of thing I live with. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games. And that's a sad way to have to live after going through all that, to have that kind of aftermath where you have to go through that. Yeah, it was very hard. It was very scary. I ended up being, um, like I I was very young, obviously. I was eight years old when it happened. And I ended up just sitting and watching and listening. And um, I'm very good at that today, even. (laughs) So... Yeah, I just sat and listened, not really knowing and understanding at the time, but when I got older is when it really affected me. The stuff that you had heard and and taken in stuck with you. Yes, that's when I started realizing, you know, the meaning and understanding what I heard and and things of that nature. So it, it was like dealing with it all over again, as well as I had blocked certain some things out and when I was I think I was I was 15 or 16 years old all of a sudden that memory came um, opened up and it was like watching a movie and so I had to deal with that all over again too those memories were when she was at the funeral she I, I just couldn't understand why she wouldn't wake up and come home you know, and so I, I spent a lot of time in the room with her um, and caressing her hair and touching her skin. And um, that's when I discovered a lot of her wounds. Um, her ear had been severed and I had blocked all that out. That's a lot for an eight-year-old to have to... Yeah, so it it was just... Uh, I had blocked all that out. So then, um, you know, as a teenager, then when all those memories came back as if it had just happened, so then I had to deal with it again. <laughs> and you mentioned that her murder was a savage one. She was attacked viciously and stabbed. Uh, repeatedly. As far as you know, did she have any enemies that would want to do that? Was there any reason that someone might want to hurt her? Did she have anybody, any run-ins with anybody that you're aware of? No, I don't know of anybody that, um, or I haven't come across anybody either that she didn't, she never had any enemies. Um, I've heard that repeatedly from her friends that, you know, she was good and kind to everybody. She did not have any enemies. I would, I would, uh, I feel very strongly that she knew who her killer was or is. I 
and I do believe it's, I mean, it was personal. Past that, I really don't. Have you wondered all these years whether you know the person and, and had to wonder if you're passing them in your movements and, and walking right by the person that did that? Um, almost every day of my life. And along the way, I know serial killer Henry Lee Lucas confessed to killing your sister. He had falsely confessed to a lot of different crimes, and in the end he was pretty much ruled out as as being your sister's murderer. When that first came out, though, did that give your family some kind of false hope that maybe the case was going to be solved? Oh, you have no idea. Um, I remember that that night very vividly. It was, I came home and my parents were waiting for me and they said, we have some news. And I knew by the tone of my dad's voice that, you know, this was really serious. And he said they found, they had found Debbie's killer. And yeah, it was. It was very mixed emotions. It was, I mean, you're, you have relief, you know, thinking that found, found who this person is and that you've got answers. And that, and that chapter, you know, that, that chapter has come to an end and all it did was make our lives even more miserable. It's like reopening old wounds to your, for your family. It opened up a lot of wounds, and then my parents directly went to Lubbock, and on that first visit, they realized it was very obvious that Henry was not the one that killed her. His, his uh, confession was, there was, there was nothing in his confession that even came close to what happened to her. And unfortunately, he's had a bad reputation of confessing to lots of murders that he had nothing to do with. Yes, that is true. And that so many families have been affected by that. Yeah. And that left you, your family back at square one because now you're thinking, hey, we have some answers maybe. But then you get that rug pulled out from underneath you. Not only is worse than square one because... Then they, my parents ended up fighting for, it was obvious that he didn't kill her. So now they're fighting Lubbock PD and the Texas Rangers to get her case back open and, and to prove that Henry didn't kill her because they didn't, they didn't want to listen to that. They, they were determined that Henry had killed her. And it uh, it bankrupted my parents, and they had spent every penny they had and more. It was very devastating, very devastating times, but they weren't going to give up until they knew her case was opened because the real killer's out there, and they just could not live without it being open, knowing that the wrong person confessed. And you feel that the they spent a lot of time on him when they shouldn't have, when they should have been looking in other directions? 
Absolutely. All that time, all that money, all that energy, not only from them, but Love It PD. I mean, everybody. All that time, money, and energy, her, her, if it would have been focused actually on her case, on her murder, it would probably been solved. I get very angry when I think about that. And now that it's been 40 years, you know, four decades, over four decades, it's, it I guess it would be 43 years, 43 mm-hmm. years. And <laughs> that would be considered a, a really cold case based on the, the time frame. But do you get encouragement when you see these old decades, old cases finally being solved? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do get encouragement, but I will say my, I, I feel that my journey has been very spiritually led. I feel that I'm being led down this path for a reason. And that, that's, and that's the thing. I do have hope. I have so much hope. I do get tired and exhausted and sometimes don't know where to go. You know, what, what am I going to do next? But I always have hope. I will always have hope. But yes, um, seeing these cold cases that are just as old or older than, than my sister Debbie's and they are being solved. So it can be done. And do you know what the status is of any physical evidence or DNA that they have in the case that might help them to one day solve the case? Um, no, I'm not. I'm not aware of anything. They won't um, reveal any of that information to me. And that's probably frustrating not knowing, you know, do they have something that puts it closer to being solved or are they completely in the dark? It is very frustrating. Yeah, it's very frustrating. I, I wish they, they would share certain information with me to at least, you know, is there something that we can be testing or do we need to have tested or, you know, what do they have? That's another thing with the Cold Case Foundation that they offered their services to to help with that, which, again, they won't collaborate with them. Which is frustrating because they're getting, you know, help and assistance that they could use to potentially solve the case or at least explore Mm -hmm. some different things. And for them not to do that, I can only imagine has got to be frustrating. It's very frustrating. And they always have, they, they're just really good at twisting and manipulating things and making excuses for not just doing the right thing. If they, they just spend as much time working the case as they do trying to fight against it, it would be so much further down the road. Now, part of your journey has been to keep your sister's case out there and keep attention on it and not let it be forgotten. What are some of the steps that you've taken to keep her case out there and keep it fresh in people's minds? Oh, um... Well, I've gone back to Lubbock um, several times, um, visiting with with uh, different people. I've also um, there was an article done in Avalanche Journal that they did, and then there was a segment on the TV that they did I think last November 
I'm just trying to get the message out there and, you know, hoping someone would speak up. Somebody knows something. You, you don't. Somebody knows something. And I just, I just give anything for someone to talk. It's been 43 years. If somebody does have information or they want to learn more about the case, do you have any websites set up or any, you know, social media pages where people can look and, and find more about the case? Yes. Um, I have a Facebook page for her and it's called justice for Deborah Sue Williamson. Um, I also have an email that I've set up for her as well. Um, and it's just, excuse me, it's justice for Debbie W at gmail.com. Um, just anybody. I mean, if you've got anything, it, got anything that you'll share anything at all I just beg you to to please share that information even if it seems like something smaller maybe not important it could be something that helps the case absolutely a lot of times the smallest things are really the biggest things and people just don't know it absolutely they don't they don't know what information they really have so whatever it is, the smallest thing could actually be so important. So please don't hesitate, you know, to share anything. And if somebody wanted to call in a tip, is there a tip line that people can call to give information? There's a crime line um, in Lubbock. It's 806-741-1000. And hopefully people, if they do know something or they mm -hmm. something sounds familiar they can reach out and and give that information yes please they can also contact um the cold case foundation um and that's cold their website's coldcasefoundation.org um, because they're still helping me as much as they can and hopefully the the police that are investigating the case take them up on their offer at some point to help as well i really hope so I hope so. They have a lot of knowledge and skills and technology that Lubbock doesn't have, um, you know, resources to. And I'm, I found them the resources. That's one of the things they told me. They didn't have resources, you know, enough resources. So I went and found them resources. <laughs> and then it's still not enough. Not enough. Well, hopefully at some point they do decide that they're willing to talk to them and see if they can provide some help and maybe help steer the, the case in a different direction than it's been going. Because when it's 40 years old, over 40 years old, then maybe it's time to do something a little differently. And that's, I agree. Yes. And that's um, from what I'm reading and learning. And, um, and that's a lot of the key to solving these um, older cold cases. Um, cases is because you get someone else to, to look at it and they bring in different um, resources and tools and ideas and thoughts and that's that's usually where they gain their information and start getting actually making headway on the case well I'm hoping that one day soon you do 
get some kind of breaks and things start to go in a good direction for the case? I hope so. Um, Because I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. And I'm not going away. And I think your sister would probably be proud of you for for taking up her case after 40 years. She deserves justice. Um, My family deserves justice. And not only that, if this person did it to her, have they hurt anybody else all these years? That just breaks my heart. That there might be somebody else out there that was also hurt by this person. Correct. That is, that just breaks my heart. You know, we've, this person needs to be found and, and be removed off the street. It might be the person that you're walking down the street with or in the grocery store with. They need to be removed from society. So they cannot harm anyone else ever again. And that's a positive way to to end it, the discussion about your sister's case. The, you know, I know it's been a long, challenging road for your family and, and your journey is, is not over yet. But I hope that you hang in there and hold out hope that your sister's case will be solved one day. Thank you. I, I feel it will be. It will be. One way or the other, it's going to be solved. Um, I'm determined. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Murder of My Family. As we wrap up this episode, I wanted to invite you to listen and subscribe to my other true crime podcast, Crime Sphere, which I formerly co-hosted with Nina from the Already Gone podcast, and which I currently co-host with Jamie from the Murderish podcast. In each episode... Jamie and I discuss what's going on in true crime news, television, documentaries, books, and podcasts, and we interview some of the biggest names in the world of true crime. I'll leave you now with a short preview of Crimesphere, and I hope you'll give it a listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hi, this is Jamie Rice. And this is Mike Morford. And we'd like to invite you to check out our podcast, Crimesphere. In every episode of Crimesphere, we discuss what's happening in the world of true crime news and media. Whether it's the new true crime TV show everyone's talking about, or that fantastic Netflix documentary that you're ready to binge on. Or maybe it's that exciting podcast that you need to know about. Whatever it is, we've got you covered. And on Crimesphere, we bring you in-depth interviews with some of the biggest names in true crime. Like the one with Paul Holes, who helped bring down the Golden State Killer. And, uh, you know, it was very satisfying to be within Sack Sheriff's office and seeing uh, D'Angelo being brought in in handcuffs and being tucked away in that interview room. Or the one with attorney David Rudolph, who represented Michael Peterson in The Staircase. And on there, uh, I give a, a sort of my inside view on each of the episodes of The Staircase. And the final one is uh, my view on, on the uh, owl theory. It might even be a talk with one of your favorite true crime podcasters. Justin and I were basically the first to have two hosts covering true crime, and we kind of had to learn as we went. You never know who's going to drop by Crimesphere to talk some true crime. New episodes of Crimesphere drop every other Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe today and don't miss an episode.